You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello there, Stu here. Um, It was with enormous sadness that I learned this morning about the death of Jeremy Hardy at the age of just 57. Um, And I wanted to uh, just repeat this episode from a a fantastic live interview that we did at Soho Theatre. He was so warm and so friendly beforehand. I really had that kind of meeting your heroes thing backstage. Um, And he immediately put me at my ease and was just such a warm and friendly man. And I think there is, uh, as a listener pointed out, there's a bit in this episode where I refer to Jeremy as the opposite of a bastard. And uh, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I I don't really know what else to say. I've stripped all the the stings and blurbs and everything out of this. So it's just the whole of the interview. Um, and it strikes me as this is uh, this is a, a maybe a fitting way to say goodbye to Jeremy for those of us that only got to know him uh, very very briefly, um, and to thank him for uh, for everything really for all of his uh, wonderful comedy and for his passion and um, for just being the opposite of a bastard. So here it is in all its unedited glory. Uh, this is Jeremy Hardy. Thanks, Jezza. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Jeremy. Uh, I've just called you Jeremy. There we go. What a fantastic start to the show. That's fine. You're obviously a huge fan, (laughs) Thanks. Well, I remember listening. I mean, we were talking about this before. You've been doing stand-up for four decades. How much of the fourth? I'm in my fourth decade. Uh, Okay, that's just a. That's, that means I've just been doing it for more than thirty. It sounds better. It sounds thirty years in a month. (laughs) Thirty-four years. Okay, that's quite a long time. Yeah, that's enough to make one person go woo. That seems oh, yeah. reasonable. That's quite a long time. So, and, and to still be alive. Yeah. <laughs> that's your edge. Yeah. Yeah, there are no. people who've been doing it for longer, but they're mostly dead. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should start by talking about the early days of your career and how you put yourself oh, I was together. Young and pretty in those days. <laughs> how you put yourself together as a comedian. What what do people most often get wrong about the birth of alternative comedy for which you were actually present? Oh well, there's a narrative. I mean, bless. I mean, Stuart Lee. I'm very fond of Stuart. He's a brilliant comedian, but he likes to be the president of comedy, and he <laughs> he always talks about the early days of alternative comedy, and he doesn't know because he was still at Cheltenham Ladies College at that point. <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, I was I, I came along a bit late. I mean, Stuart was not long after me, but I started beginning of '84, and it had already been up and running since May '79. Was the opening of the Comedy Store, and I think the Earth Exchange, which was the first alternative, yeah, alternative comedy club in London, uh, had opened shortly before that. The Earth Exchange, you got paid in vegetarian food. <laughs> Which is Arnold Brown called it pleasure free food, <laughs> and it was like rhubarb crumble with no sugar and wholemeal pastry and no rhubarb. I'm, and I am not salivating because people were rhubarb intolerant. And um, <laughs> but uh, I came along a bit after. I so, so I'd, I'd missed the first sort of five years. Uh, I was I was still at college when it all started. Um, but it, what, I, mean, I did go, I did, the first thing I saw was, the first live stand-up I saw was the comic strip tour, which was, Alexi came on, he was the first live comic I saw, Alexi sells fantastic, bursting out of a big mod suit with a pork pie hat, screaming at the audience, and then Arnold Brown, for me, was the real star of that show, because there was Jenny and Dawn and Rick and Aid and all those people, but to see this sort of shuffling, awkward Jewish accountant, Arnold Brown, I'm Scottish and I'm Jewish, two racial stereotypes for the price of one. My father was a teetotaler and I remember the shame on a Saturday night of him being thrown into pubs. <laughs> and I just thought that if you can be like that, I mean, that is fantastic. And Alexi was the opposite, screaming at the audience, you know, bullshit, piss, cunt, which I thought was good. And, um, 
But, but, but the first comedy that I'd seen, stand-up... Well, growing up was Dave Allen, who was the, the first comic who didn't just do um, man-in-pub joke. And I like jokes. I like proper old old jokes. I like, I like silly jokes. There's a bloke in a job interview, and uh, he said, this is, this is an example of a joke. Um, <laughs> but I'm, sell- I'm telling it as an example, so, it, so you can analyse it rather than enjoy it. Um, <laughs> It's a bloke doing a job interview, and the bloke says to him, what do you think is one of your better qualities? And the guy says, well, um, I think I'm very confident in my opinions. And the interviewer says, well, I think that's a very good quality. And the guy says, I don't give a fuck what you think. <laughs> um, but, uh, and you could probably explain that joke to the audience, and they'd, say, <laughs> and they'd all say, I see. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, Dave Allen would, would, would chat, you know, and tell stories and anecdotes and talk about Catholicism and the church and religion and sex and all of those things, which most comics didn't do. And I, but I liked all the guys, not all of them. I didn't like the, the sort of overt racists, but I like comics who tell gags. I think that's a great skill. Uh, but then to see Richard Pryor live in concert at the cinema when I was 18, middle-class white kid who'd grown up in Surrey, going to the cinema and seeing Richard Pryor in the you know, for a two-hour film of stand-up, I thought, bloody Nora, I mean, this is amazing stuff. We, we had nothing like that. Did we you, were so behind. We were so behind in terms of comedy. Do you remember, did you see, did you go on your own to see that? Did you go with friends? I went with co- friends at college, yeah. And, we and all did just, it have the same effect on, on them as well? Oh, yeah, and there was a friend of mine, my, my friend Glennis, who was my first black friend, because I did grow up in Surrey. <laughs> And we did. I mean, Methodists were still being hunted for sport. So, um, and uh, Glennis, who's still a close friend today, uh, she was in fits. And there was lots of stuff that a black person would obviously appreciate much more, especially at a time when black people were still marginal in this country. And, and you know, at a university where there weren't many other black people, you know, and, uh, and people were quite overtly racist, actually, because it was still all right to be like that, even in a university setting. But um, no, I mean, to see something like that was, was amazing. But I didn't start scribbling down ideas. I, I always thought being uh, in comedy was about sketches, you know, footlights, Monty Python, then uh, Not the Nine O'Clock News. I always thought, that's what you do, it's sketches, or you're a poet like Roger McGough. I never thought I could be like a stand-up because we didn't have a tradition of people that just talk, you know, narrative, observational stuff. We didn't really have that. We had Victoria Wood, who's actually underplayed as a great... I think she was a fantastic comedian, and people... I've uh, never really given her... They've given her credit. Oh, she was a great writer. Her sketches were great, but she was a really, really good comic. And John Dowie, who she took under her wing, who is one of the great unsung heroes of alternative comedy, uh, who was on Factory Records, um, and is still around, John. He's got a book coming out. But um, when I saw the first actual live comedy, I saw, as I say, was the comic strip tour. It would have been about 1980. And at that point, I thought, well, I'd, I'd quite like to maybe do this, but... But I, I, didn't, I didn't know there was any way that you could do it. I didn't know where you would do it or how it would happen until I moved to London and found out that there was this circuit. Do you remember in, in amongst those early gigs, I'm, something I'm, I'm struggling to phrase because it only just occurred to me, I spoke to Norman Lovett years ago. My name's Norman Lovett. The number of times people have said, love it, I bet you do. I'd have six or seven pounds by now. <laughs> Norman... <laughs> Norman told me, and I, I, I hope you won't be offended by this, but I think I remember Norman telling me that in your early days... I copied him. You copied him? Yeah, I did, not consciously. I definitely did. I mean, uh, as an influence, it, Norman was definitely the biggest influence because I was very awkward and I was very... Um, I'm socially awkward anyway, which is why I'm not looking the audience in the eye. I do that passive-aggressive thing of looking slightly above the eye line so it looks like I'm looking at you, but actually looking at your hairline, which really freaks people out. Use that. But... Um, <laughs> But I, when I first thought I'd do an open spot, I'd never used a microphone before. I just didn't know what to do with it. And some friends of mine had a band in Lewisham, and I'd go down to their cellar and just practice standing with the microphone because I'd never done that. And I mean, even now, I'd, I'm holding a mic. I don't like holding a mic because I'll probably drop it or eat it. And so I always leave the mic in the stand, and that's just been a thing that I do. I've never... People have said, oh, no, you need to take it out and walk around. You should be a walk around. I said, no, I don't want to walk around. It's tiring. And um, I just like the focus of... Because I'm not... 
I'm not at ease with myself. So a true projection of myself on stage is a man who's not at ease with himself, you know. Um, so, but when I first saw Norman, I thought, well, I didn't consciously copy him, but it was such a great... I mean, Norman is exactly the same as he is on... I mean, Norman is a fucking amazing comedian. I, I went round Norman's house when I first got to know him, and I'd say, you're right, Norman. would say, yeah, someone's been round. They've, they've been to the toilet, and they've, they've rucked up all the carpet all around the bottom of the toilet. You know, like, it should be smooth, so that the bits go round the side there. And it's all right. I don't need this. <laughs> and I thought, is this a joke or is this Norman? And that is what I love about Norman. That's what I love about Kim Noble, who often performs here at the Soho Theatre, as, as I'm very fond of Kim, and he's a dear friend. And his life and his comedy are just the same thing. It was performance art, really, not comedy. But he is screamingly funny because it's him. It's visceral and it's genuine. And with Norman, is there's, you just don't know if he's joking with you or not. Sometimes he's just talking. And he'll go on stage and just talk, and after about... 20 minutes or saying, well, let's get this show on the road then. <laughs> but um, but he, I did find myself doing him because, uh, I mean, not in a, you know, not in prison type way. I mean, um, <laughs> being Norman, because A, it's very infectious and it's a very funny delivery, but also because I was frightened, deadpan is definitely the easiest thing to do if you're frightened. Either that or you do, because Alexi's quite a complex and awkward character. But he goes to the other, he does the opposite thing. You become you become the the big shouty bully that you wish you could be. Um, so I suppose it's like teaching. Really, you've got to find something that works for your for your body type and your you know. There'd be no point in me being trying to be the overbearing alpha male in the room. Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> so I, I started out very very deadpan uh, as a defence mechanism, and so that lent itself to be Norbert, really. And I went on Saturday Live on the TV and um, I think it was Chris Difford rang Norman and said, Norman, Norman, you're, uh, you've got someone copying you on the TV. You need to check it out. Norman rang me, he's very upset. Jeremy, I'm, you're plagiarising me. I, I'm upset. But he's forgiven me now. But it was, it was I, had, I, I did, I did, I copied. I did, not consciously, it's just... But I try not to watch comedians because it's very... I find... I find people in you know uh, infectious, and so yes. it's very because I also because I'm lower middle class, I have sympathetic accent syndrome. Yes, which I, means I, you start I totally have that as well. You start to, and we had these cousins who were Dutch, and it was painful because my mum, <laughs> my mum had it, and she'd say, "Would you like some breakfast?" I say, "Mum, that you didn't just speak in their language; you just did a funny voice." When when they're in Holland, they speak Dutch. They don't speak English in a Dutch accent as though they were in a war film, but. Um, but yeah, so it's painful. If I'm in Belfast for a day, I'll start saying... Uh, I, uh, I was speaking to my partner on the phone, and I said, get you to bed now. I thought, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> she's not going to fall for that. She's, when, she's back in Streatham. When you, when you watched that Richard Pryor concert, yeah. which must be as far away from your real self as possible... And oh, you, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> When you first got an inkling that that was possible, and that did did you have an inkling at that time? No, that that could... only when I saw people go on stage in this country. Okay, when I saw Alexi and Arnold, and I wrote. I remember going to my bedroom in my house at university, and I wrote this. It's probably I saw in a bit of paper somewhere in the love, a bit of in this sort of angry ranty routine, which would have been preposterous because I was, you know, a sort of lower middle class. Surrey raised boy reading history and politics at Southampton University. So the idea of me going on stage to berate the audience with my life history and my experience. You know, you're talking about a guy who was raised in a brothel and was a cocaine addict, not me, Richard Pryor. <laughs> so hard to compete with that. But I, but when I, when I, I think, uh, I mean, no, I'm talking about Alexi actually was at the time that I first sat and wrote stuff down. Um, but I, that was Alexi Sayo, who's a big shouty scouser, you know, with an interesting family background, raised by communists and an interesting background. And um, so I was never going to, that, that wasn't going to work. It wasn't until I could start to sort of think about how I would just go on and just be myself. And that was when I came to London and watched Stand Up and you saw this whole variety of people. The great myth is it was all very political and it really, really wasn't. People talked about politics in a slightly knowing way, but most of it was actually 
taking the piss out of the left. You know, people like Alexei, you know, who's who was you know raised as a as a Marxist Leninist, and uh, people like Tony Allen, who was an anarchist, who was a you know a, a, a ranter at Hyde Park Corner. Um, lots of knowing jokes about the politics of London, and and it, uh, it was probably quite niche at that point. The circuit it was very much came out of fringe theatre. So people who would go and see Brecht plays would then go to a room above a pub and see Alexei Sale or Tony Allen. So, uh, but but most stuff by the time I started, it was jugglers. Uh, there was a bloke called what's his name Bernie Bennett who did a high wire act on a stage stage no bigger than this he turned up with all this equipment twenty minutes with a high wire and a unicycle there were poets there were people doing musical comedy there were people with serious mental health issues um, and you know there would be people who'd make ice sculptures and yes and, I remember and all about sorts it. of stuff and but people there's this myth that all you had to do was was say something rude about Mrs Thatcher and the whole audience would fall about you'd get massive laughs you got no laughs you got funding but you got no laughs <laughs> although ironically I did get funding from Margaret Thatcher because she brought in a scheme called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Mm. And what that meant was you could sign off the dole and you'd get 40 quid as opposed to 21 quid uh, to set up a small business. And Harry Enfield did that and I did that. And uh, and I think it's gone rather better for Harry than it has for me. <laughs> but I think he's probably signed off of it now. I don't think he still takes the 40 quid. But I still do. But... Um, but yeah, all that happened was that once a month you had to meet your advisor and they'd say, how's it going then? And you'd say, I'm doing my comedy. And they'd say, you want to watch that Gary Wilmot? He's doing well. But, it, but really, it was quite clever because it was a way of getting you off the dole because otherwise we'd have all just stayed on the dole. So do you remember, and I, I'm, I might come back to that because I think there is something happening in comedy at the moment whereby uh, the, the massive profusion of new acts on the circuit, the fact that the circuit's kind of contracting there are more free entry gigs. Uh, I was talking with the comedian oh. Matt Green about this last night and about how... So I just poured water all over the electrics. This is an episode of Holby City about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think there is something happening in comedy. Because we don't have an equivalent of, of that enterprise allowance scheme at the moment, I think it prejudices, it, it benefits... The way that comedy is set up benefits people who are independently wealthy or who yeah. can live at their parents' I place. I think it's really, really hard for comics now. I mean... I mean, that, the 40 quid a week off of the um, Enterprise Allowance Scheme was great, but, uh, and the dole before that. But in all honesty, I mean, my first gig was at the Banana Cabaret in Ballam, and I did, I did characters there. Not very good, but I did characters. What characters did you I do? I used to do uh, a Blue Peter presenter making a nuclear fallout shelter with dolls and teddies <laughs> out of an old Weetabix packet. And I, th what was the other one I did? I can't remember. Oh, I think I did an appeal on behalf of boring people, which wasn't very good. It was just I'd, I'd wear a bow tie and say, hello, I'm doing an appeal. You know that voice that people used to do for boring people, <laughs> um, which is basically my voice. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but um, yeah, so I did the Blue Peter thing a bit as an open spot. And, but and, and was that out of a... a a sort of fear of doing your own thing? Did that predate Probably, your own but it's, I think I'd done it at university because I did a review thing at university, which is all sketches. Because as I say, that was what you sort of thought... Com respectable comedy, middle-class, university-based comedy was sketches. You know, it was... Even people like, you know, Rowan Atkinson were, were very much in... You know, he would do a stand-up show with just himself, but it was all characters, it was all sketch-driven. There was no Rowan Atkinson on stage. Um... So, uh, you know, the, we hadn't really, you know, the, establishing the idea of, of comics talking, comedians being people who just talk, was very, very new in this country. That was a real revolution that alternative comedy was. It really grew out of punk. I mean, you've got punk and then you've got the ranting poets like Johnny Clark, Seething Wells, and then you've got stand-up comedy. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the real breakthrough was just that people don't have to tell a gag about a man going into a pub. Although I, you know, as I say, I do like those jokes, but um, I've lost my train of thought now. I remember getting off the tube. The rest of it's a blank. Do you remember the first joke that you wrote that felt like your own voice? Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, I did. By February, beginning of '84, I did a thing that Ivor Denbina organised, which was a which is a thing where we got paid. I got eleven quid. Um, bunch of us. He he. Um, Always paid around that amount of money. Still does, it, still does, apparently. Yeah. But um, 
No, Ivor's a great fella. But um, I don't know, there's about 10 of us. There was Arthur Smith, Kevin McAleer, one of my all-time favourite comics, Kevin. Kevin's, Kevin's opening line was, I'm Kevin McAleer, as the name suggests. <laughs> and it's a, it, you have to know that people of Tyrone, to, that is absolutely... I mean, there's no, there's no artifice there, that is... <laughs> Your own people are like he'd do stuff like uh, in those days we used to make our own entertainment by watching the television. <laughs> um, but I I think I was very stiff then. There was no it was just survival. I was just I had some put downs. I wrote a lot of put downs because I'd seen I'd been to the comedy store. I'd been to other clubs. I knew people would heckle, so I'd written some put downs. But I was very stiff. Do you remember what? Do you remember a put down that you um, wrote? One of my early, well, I'd just shout. If someone heckled me, I'd say, um, "I'm sorry, Nigel. It's over. Can't you accept that?" <laughs> um, but um, and I mean, there were all the standard ones that I didn't like doing. People would say, "Oh, that's what happens when cousins marry," or yes. sit back in your seat, someone will plug it in. But I never liked those. Sure, uh, because and was was heckling as much of a, an issue as you feared it was? I remember when I started. I'm sure I, I held back a few years from um, fear of being heckled. Only it actually in happened. some places. I mean, the the tunnel in Greenwich. They were terrifying. They were all Malcolm Hardy's friends, and he'd met most of them in prison. <laughs> And that meant they were all highly educated. I mean, they all had degrees in sociology. And they would look at you and, and, and they, would, they would see you moving toward a punchline and think, well, this is when we echo. This is at, he's at his most vulnerable during a pause, you see. You see, he's like all the expectation in his eyes. He thinks, I'm going to get a big laugh here. So he's off guard. He's all confident. Now we strike. <laughs> And I remember one night at the comedy store, I was holding onto the mic stand. I was just holding the mic stand. You know, you fiddle a bit with the stand. And, he, and the bloke shouted, let go of the mic stand. You're displaying your insecurity. <laughs> I've heard that's a famous heckle now. I didn't know that was, that yeah. was you. They, yeah, 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 Oh, yeah. man, that's I mean, one of the were, most devastating yeah. heckles. I mean, they were terrifying. So uh, about, I almost want to cut that out of the show. I don't want that heckle to be out there. I don't want, to, I I don't want people I to know. know you can say that. I know, but they were brilliant hecklers. Um, but it was, sp- and I went down one night as a punter. I just thought, oh, I should get as a civilian. I was off duty because the terrible thing that happens when you're a young comic is you're working every weekend, and then you get a weekend off by chance, and you've already lost all your friends because because you don't go out on a weekend anymore. And then there's nothing to do. So you end up going and hanging out in the bar at a comedy club. And that's that way you end up uh, severely mentally ill. Um, but I, um, I, I went along as a punter to the tunnel and I heckled somebody. I heckled. I thought a, that was going to be the end of the story. I no, went along no, before it was I like, knew it. I, I was like, you know, this is what happened when the, the Nazis occupied the Channel Islands. You know, and very quickly you start dobbing people in to the Gestapo. I, I, um, what was your heckle? Who did you heckle? Uh, I daren't say it now, because she's somebody I'm quite friendly with, and I think she's forgotten. But, um, there can't be that many women have been doing the she did this, in the She 80s. did this act about existentialism, and, and I shouted, show us your psyche. Um, and then I felt really ashamed. But you do, it's that, it's, that's the power of the mob. It's like, you, you know, I saw the pitchforks... I saw the burning torches and I joined in. And I just thought, thank God, it's not me who's being bullied. It's that terrible thing of when you're a small person that's been picked on. It's like, thank God, it's not me. Yes. You know, so, uh, just yeah. Just on the subject of heckling, I, I heckled a show at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival last weekend. Nish Kumar was comparing. He'd established there was an actuary in the audience. Five minutes later, he asked them what they did. They said, I'm an actuary. And at the back of the room, I shouted, what are the odds? And it's the funniest thing I've ever said. <laughs> And, and I tell you what, when you're out there in the darkness, it's easier. It's easier to think of funny stuff. There are good hecklers. I mean, there was the, there was the case, you know, um, Kirk Douglas's other son, not Michael, there's another son who's a comic, mm-hmm. and he came over to the comedy store, and he was struggling. This is probably apocryphal. He was struggling really badly, and he just said, look, you guys should treat me with some respect. I'm Kirk Douglas's son. And someone at the back shouted, no, I'm Kirk Douglas's son. <laughs> I, I think that is apocryphal because the person who made it up recently told me it was them that made it up. Oh, who made but, it up? Well, I can it's a good, bug it if it's I can a good remember run. now. Um, I, but there was a Star Trek sketch someone was doing at Edinburgh and someone shouted, it's comedy, Jim, but not as we know it. <laughs> and, uh, oh, Tony Allen, dear Tony Allen, who was a pioneer in many ways of stand-up comedy, was sitting in the front row. Um, I think I might even have been there. These guys called the New York Stand-Ups came to... Um, 
Edinburgh in about 84. Because the thing is, American comics knew what they were doing and to come over here and be new but experienced, whereas everybody here that was new was incompetent. More interesting, <laughs> but obviously when you start, you haven't got a clue what... You, well, that was the case then. I think comedians are fully formed now because they've grown up watching Jack D and Eddie Izzard, whereas I grew up watching... Um, relatives die um no i i i I grew up um you know in in the 30s um no i mean we didn't have you know we had we had dave allen and frankie howard was and les dawson i mean all brilliant comedians but we didn't have that sort of observational easy style where you where you just chat about stuff or you can talk about politics and stuff so um, whereas now I think people are fully formed but I mean it was very easy for people to come in from Australia or America and be brilliant and, and massively successful because they, were, they had that under their belt they were experienced already so we would always be in awe of the Americans when they'd come over and they'd just do their rubbish like hey guys you know you know this when you go out raining and water falls on your head what is that and everyone goes wow god that's so confident and amazing and, um, but this guy and they all do that because I hate crowd work and I've got friends it up, I hate it. Leave the audience alone. They've paid. Don't ask them questions. Don't set up this bogus sense of intimacy because they're basically paying your mortgage. Just because that's how dirty it is. Just respect that they've paid and leave them the fuck alone. You know. And oh, what's your name? What are you doing? Oh, you know, you're oh, you're punching above your all oh, that shit that people. Are. But um, I know people do it well, but it's shit. Um, and you're with the, you're with the kind of the Woody Allen school of thought of you don't improvise on stage. You no, just I want do. To I do the... sometimes. I do, and sometimes people shout things out. But we, but because I because I look like a nice person who doesn't hate the audience, but also isn't interested in what they have to say or what they do for a living, people sometimes chip in, but usually in a way that's helpful. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So they will shout out a suggestion or something that is a point of information. Because they are, you know, they're a bit like par- my gigs are a bit like meetings of the parish council. So somebody will say, "I move that we adjourn." About. Usually about four minutes in. Um, and occasionally I get voted out of my own case um, and have to resign. But, um, but no, I don't, I don't like... But anyway, my point is Americans always do the... And uh, all that shit that people do. And um, so uh, these American comedians were on in Edinburgh. And one of them, Tony Allen, who's, who's an gigantic man. I mean, t- I mean, in my world, most people are. But he's like seven foot 12. And he was sitting in the front row with his sort of legs all folded up. And this American comic said, hey, buddy, what do you do? And he said, I'm a comedian. What do you do? <laughs> and I thought that was well deserved. But I got a very good echo once. I was on at the... Um, Crown and Castle in Hackney, which is now part of the vast gentrification of Dalston. And uh, it's probably a, a, a pop-up wheatgrass juice bar now, <laughs> but it, it was a pub. And uh, I, had a, I, um, I had a joke, which I probably did in Norman Lovett's voice. I had this cardigan, and my joke was, I got this cardigan in return for sexual favours. I went to Boots on my brother's behalf. <laughs> Because in those days there was shame and stigma attached to buying contraceptives. So you see, that's the idea. I should explain this to the joke. <laughs> because it was very, very funny in 1984. Um, but, the, but the minute I said, I got this cardigan in return for sexual favours, a very old lady at the back said, Looks like it shrunk a bit. <laughs> and I thought, I, thought I, I, I won't proceed with the joke now. <laughs> Let's talk about your your political jokes on stage. Oh, Did fuck, you s- do we have to? Well, why do you say that? Because once you're down as a political comedian, people think, oh, God, life is so hard. Do we really want to go and have the trade figures explained to us for two hours? You know, and I mean, I talk about this a lot with Mark Steele, because I think when you're down as a political comedian, it's sort of like, He's not a proper comedian. I turned up at a gig in... Do you, in, do you think... Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah, definitely. People think proper comedy is people doing stuff about, hey, aren't kids small? And don't kids, don't kids say kid stuff? And you know what it's like when a thing is not quite as easy as you hoped it would be? What's that about? That's what people think real comedy is. Who but do you, when you say people, which people do you mean? I, I don't know. I, always... I, don't, I don't like people. I don't meet people. <laughs> Um, I Before, try to keep them out of my life. Before, 
Before I was a comic, I was a huge comedy fan, and I always regarded political comedy as proper comedy, to which I aspired but would never be I able think to all do. Comedy, because everything's valid, um, but I, I think the categorisation... I mean, I think it's a bit weird. To be honest, I know some great comedians who, who do stuff that I think... Bloody hell, are you still doing stuff about aeroplanes? I mean, you know, that was that was a cliche when I started. Your airplane material, that was mm-hmm. your bloody... That was your real... God, okay, it's a re- things are going really badly. I better do the airplane stuff. You know, it was a cliche in America. Because oh, it was so... Re- where do you think that originated from? It was so relatable. I think it, it was, was so- when airplanes were invented, people started, <laughs> you know. It was, you know, it was... Well, it's just like, you know, whatever, your breadsticks and your, and your inflatable thing above the thing and the announcement and the, and the slide and taking off your high heels and all that stuff. I mean... It, it it just it was a cliche. Dogs, cats, and, and I like material. I mean, I you know, there's always new jokes to make about dogs or cats or a difference between men and women. But these things do become cliches. So when is somebody is doing? And I sometimes think, look, who are you? What? Yeah, that's fine, that stuff. But who are you? And then, but then equally, somebody might come and see me do. If I'm only doing twenty minutes at a benefit, I'll do all my left wing stuff, and they'll think, yeah, but who are you? And what do you wake up screaming about? And what happened in your childhood that made you into such a clearly damaged and troubled man? I do think that there's an element of comedy whereby what they, they're looking at us, they're looking at you, thinking, what have you got that's worth complaining about? What, what, in terms of being quite privileged? No, 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 I don't, no, I don't mean that. Oh, we, we, absolutely, we can talk about that. But um, I think that th- when you say what an audience looks at a comic and thinks... What do you wake up screaming about in the middle of the night? I think that's... I, I feel that as well. If I see someone... And obviously there are the Harry Hills of the world where you just think, brilliant joke writer. Oh, God, great, I love Harry. Yeah. Harry Hill so, makes me laugh. I mean, I love Harry Hill. Absolutely, absolutely. So he's one of my all-time favourites. So there's definitely... there's Not everyone has to do the soul-bearing comedy. No. But I know what you mean. If you see someone do kind of bland observation that doesn't seem to have their heart and soul in it, yeah. then it, it's frustrating. Yeah, or just if they're just doing sort of one gag after another. I mean, I like jokes, and I like jokes. I like daft pub jokes. I, you know, I'm very, I'm very keen on on jokes like that. Um, but but you do want to know who the person is. And the trouble is now that there is so much comedy and so much trying to be different, and so much trying to find a you know a USP or something that you can put on a poster or something you can take to Edinburgh or something that will get you a good review that we're all sort of thinking, oh, God, oh, the next time someone dies in my life, then that's my next show, you know. And, and there is that danger that we're all looking for. And, and then maybe, maybe I could be quite moving in my next show. Maybe I could say something quite poignant. So there is a danger that you're just cannibalizing everything, you know. And, and, and I talk about death and, 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 and um, quite a lot. I mean, I've always talked quite a lot about death. But it, as you get older, it, it becomes much more relevant than, than, than birth, for example. I was, but, I was listening to some of your material from something like 2005, and you were talking about feeling old. Yeah. And I thought, you've, is that a particular preoccupation? Yeah, because the thing is, I was like old. Spencer Tracy or Dolly the Sheep. I was born old. I was cloned from an 85-year-old man. Um, I was what, born old. So uh, what, when what I you... see all these comics do their, hey, I'm just, I've just hit 40, but I think, oh, fuck off. <laughs> I did that material when I was 30. <laughs> you know. um, what, 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 is, what is it about you? You say you were born old. What does that actually mean? Is that, that preoccupation of yours... Is that connected with a, a fear of being old or feeling old? No, I think I've about? always felt old. I think I'm sort of probably getting younger as I get older in some ways um, in terms of, well, when, you f- when your face starts to fall apart, you have to start buying slightly nicer clothes. I mean, this is me, this is me having made an effort, I should point out <laughs> to the people here. Because um, when I was younger, I just wore jumble cell clothes all the time, which was quite cute in a sort of, you know, winsome-looking 22-year-old but uh, now I would just look homeless, you know. <laughs> so, um, but but no, I've always been. I've always felt old. I've never. I never felt like a young person, even when I when I was one. Um, so were you always like you talked about kind of wearing a cardigan on stage and and kind of your your position? Yeah, I can't do that now. I look like Rigsby and Rising Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> but you're almost like your your position as a comic voice on a bill of whichever other ten comedians. You have always had a sort of a a kind of a, a cosy armchair feel that has concealed the sort of anger of your material. Well, I think. The people say that, so 
Perhaps it's true. I think sometimes it you can sneak stuff past people if you're sort of quite... Dis- Equally, you can bat- batter them over the head with it. I mean, I think it's very funny when you beat someone over the head with something like Frankie Boyle does. I mean, Frankie is sort of like in the Alexi tradition of being so aggressive and so um, belligerent that any heckler is going to be macerated and people are going to try and heckle because they feel like, oh, I should have a go, and then they're going to get destroyed. Um, but also Frankie's got a real passion. I mean, the Brit, the, I mean, what the great thing about Frankie is you know that everything, everything that he does comes from a really dark place of self-hatred. So, and some of the, I mean, some of the stuff Frankie does, I don't like. Uh, I, w- I would say this to his face. Uh, and I think he's a fantastic comedian. I don't like jokes about rape because I think people have been raped and why make them revisit that needlessly, you know, I mean, but, but, um, and also there's a danger of people thinking, well, oh, thank God the shackles are, you know, the shackles of political correctness are off and we can talk about whatever we like, you know. Um, but um, Frankie is a fantastic comedian and he's, and you can see the real Frankie when he's talking about things like Palestine and injustice and poverty. And then you see like how much he really cares about things. And you see there's a man with a lot of love because he cares about humanity. Otherwise, he wouldn't be doing it. He wouldn't, be, he wouldn't care. He wouldn't care enough to talk about these things if he didn't love humanity. Um, but that um, that's very effective because he's just this sort of bulletproof, belligerent Glaswegian. Um, but I think what I do works quite well because I'm a sort of Zeta male kind of tiny wizened figure who um who says some things that are quite pertinent possibly or radical but in a in a in a way that feels comfortable because i mean i was i went to see frankie here the other night and i thought this is absolutely brilliant this is absolutely brilliant and if you went on stage in five minutes time at the glasgow empire or the apollo you would destroy the audience which i probably couldn't but Likewise, you probably couldn't come to some very nice little art centre in Cambridgeshire and and entertain my audience because they you just you just ruin their lives. I mean, <laughs> I, mean <laughs> um, I, I think I heard in one of your conversations with Mark Steele on the radio that you uh, you referred to the Triangle of Death, and I remember Maidenhead oh, yeah. being one of the towns. Maidenhead, Reading, and High Wycombe. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So tell me about that and what your who your audience are and whether you are satisfied know. with who your audience are. I don't are. know to be honest because I've I've started asking people how many have seen me before and usually most haven't possibly most have heard me on the radio but I I always think it's odd because I think I've been going for 30, 34 years so partly I'm pleased that there are new people and partly I'm thinking well what's happened to all the people that have I mean, you'd think that exponentially, assuming all those people kept coming and then had children and grandchildren, I should be playing to millions by now. (laughs) But but what you realise is that people don't keep on just coming to see you forever, especially because there are millions of other comedians now. I mean, someone, I was doing this gig in Cambridge the other night and someone said, oh, gosh, she said... um, Oh, God, I've seen you before. I must have seen you three times. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, once every ten years. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I don't know who my audience is. It varies. It varies around the country. I mean, in, in, a, in a sort of city with a big traditional trade union movement and a traditional left, like Sheffield or Manchester or Liverpool or, or Norwich, actually, or Bristol, I will get you know, a more left-wing audience, a more trade union, public sector workers, um, uh, trade unionists, I'll get that audience, teachers, nurses, and and manual labourers who are politically... Do we still have manual labourers in this country? <laughs> They're very good with their hands, you know. But um, <laughs> we'll get people, but people who read about politics and care about politics are involved in the left. If I'm in, I don't know, the wilds of... of of Devon, I mean, it it varies. I th- I suppose you've got you've got to entertain whoever's there. I mean, I'm conscious that that Brexit has. I mean, not everyone who voted for Brexit is is a sort of racist sociopath. And if you just go on stage and sort of go into a sort of 
liberal metropolitan you know sort of meltdown about how beastly it all is and how ghastly it is that people that that people don't understand how good the fishing quotas are <laughs> then then people are going to think well fuck you you know so you've got to you got to you've got to treat the audience as either you berate them you know i mean bridget christie does this very well she's her show about Brexit is brilliant. You either berate, and Stuart's brilliant. You either berate the audience in the sort of I don't care what you think, you or do what Frankie does, which is I hate you anyway, or you think, well, all right, you're, you know, you might be. I have people in the audience probably who are Tories, and I try not to hate them because <laughs> I've got friends who are Tories. I hate the Conservative Party. I think it's an absolutely egregious thing. And I think it will. It does nothing but harm. But people, individual people who support it, are not horrible. They're probably they're good neighbours. Conversely, I know lots of people on on the left who I agree with totally and are complete fuck ups as people. Um, but so I try not to. I try not to judge the audience, and I try. I try to be broad. It's difficult. I mean, we were talking before. Uh, because the audience might imagine that we'd never met until the second I walked on. Like it used to be when Cilla Black was on TV, when she'd have a guest on, and they'd hug as though they'd never met before. Uh, but we had had a five-minute chat. But um, I always feel slightly guilty shaking my guest's hand. I know, it feels a bit As weird. if we haven't just chatted yeah, for five minutes. But we didn't chat for very long, but I can't even remember what I said now. Um, what was I talking uh, about? You were talking about not hating Tories, and earlier we were talking about Trump and Macron. No, 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 we were talking about who's in the audience. Oh, yes, sorry. I don't know what I was saying. Is anyone in the audience? Can anyone in the audience remember? Um, what was I saying? No, just I don't, I don't know who's in, and I try not to sort of make people feel shit about themselves. I mean, I, I am quite unpleasant. My partner thinks I'm really unpleasant on stage because I, you know, I really... I mean, I tear into, I tear into people for strange... I, I hate people who do marathons, but for no... I hate everyone who does marathons, even friends that do marathons. I hate that. I hate them for that. Um, Why I do hate you- people who use grammar badly. I hate rudeness. I think rudeness is... Probably worse than fascism. But um, where do these things, to the extent to which these are real hatreds and not simply a comic contrivance that you can put your foot down on in a, in a, in a room? Well, that, yeah, there is that, there is that, there is that thing of, um, you know, obviously there's the sort of comic bluster of pretending to hate things and be frustrated by things that you don't really, really hate. And that, but that's part of your. People talk about comic persona. I don't think I have a comic persona. I mean, this isn't really a persona that you'd bother to create, is it? In all honesty. But, um, I mean, uh, Inception fans will be really excited by the fact that that joke was a perfect example of someone employing a comic persona um, to make a point about why they wouldn't need to employ a comic persona. Okay. But what, what I mean, I, listen back to that. It was fucking brilliant. Okay. Um, but... but um, I think when you're on stage, you're sort of in the you're you're the comedian. You try I don't know you're you're that bit of you. The same way that we've got different things that we do in life, like if we're talking to parents or we're a doctor, or uh, but especially if you're a sort of self-loathing chameleon like I am, where you you just desperately want to kind of fit in. Um, but also, I think everybody in life has different. Like you don't sort of like when you go and see the doctor, you, you don't sort of. You don't go, oh, Doctor, I've got a terrible pain up me shitter. Could you have a look at me, Jaxie? Perhaps stick a couple of fingers up there. It's all, you know, you, you think, it's a doctor, I'm worried that I might need my prostate exam. So you, we've all got different ways that we present ourselves. And uh, on stage is just one of them, you know. So, and you can be, you can sort I, I, if you're, most comedians are, are quite, a mess, and I think it's the one time in your life when you're going to be able to hold court. What I, what I've, what troubles me now is when you meet comedians that you think there's nothing wrong with you. You'd have been fine. Why the hell are you doing stand up? <laughs> I talked to Jack D about this a lot, and I heard him on Desert Island Discs, and he said the first time he went to the comedy store, he said I realised what was wrong with me. I was a comedian, and now you meet somebody who's just like could 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 just be in a boy band or like. <laughs> be an oil executive and I think why are you why are you doing stand up comedy so you know? why are you doing stand up comedy what's wrong know. with you I don't know 
I don't know, but so I don't have to face myself. I don't know, cause, because I couldn't probably... I am ashamed of it. I mean, I think I'd rather have done something important or worthwhile, but that didn't happen. I just ended up doing um, stand-up. I mean, I think I probably would have been a really good linguist. I think I'd have been a good foreign correspondent. And would those things have felt more worthwhile? Yeah, and the thing is that then when you were funny, people would have said, uh, God, he's a funny guy. Whereas when you're a comedian, your friends never say that. They say, all right, you're not on stage now. Um, Or they say, oh, he's not very funny in real life, is he? All he talks about is self-loathing and the economy. Where does the self-loathing come from, for you as opposed to any other comic, um, given that the majority of us aren't damaged, as you say? It's not real self-loathing as such. I think to be really self-loathing, you've got to be utterly self-obsessed. I mean, I think... Uh, <laughs> Are you saying that you, you don't care enough about yourself to loathe yourself yeah, properly? Yeah, that's kind of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm sufficiently interesting to be, um, to be really full of self-hatred. Um, it's, it is interesting, that, that element to which you knock yourself for your, for your not being interesting, for your safe background, the, you know, the middle-class origin... You you are always, I think, either you're being sort of tactically careful to position yourself, to, to admit to everyone, to throw yourself on our mercy that, oh, you've got an awfully safe, privileged life. No, I, think- I haven't. I mean, the thing is, I'm not, I mean, I wasn't even that posh. I was, I was born in a, on a council estate. Well, in a hospital. But I was, when um, <laughs> we lived on a council estate, it was once I'd been called Jeremy, we had to move. Um, but... Um, but yeah, my dad was a scientist, but we're not very well paid. And, and the fact we got more middle class as uh, my my elder sisters are more common, and they've got sort of they've got sort of Aldershot accents, and I'm and I'm much more, I'm much more RP. Um, but um, we weren't we weren't that well off. I mean, yeah, we were middle class. My parents were were not from privileged backgrounds, but they were very bright, and they weren't they did they hadn't got they hadn't gone to university, but they were very bright, and we always had newspapers and books and um and talked about politics and my parents loved comedy so we had comedy records in the house they didn't have any pop records but they had comedy records so i was very i was very blessed in that way so i mean it was very very comfortable not i mean it's weird this because now i mean poor people have more stuff than we had but they have much more deprived lives i mean we didn't you know the telephone was was in the house and it was you didn't have a telephone that you could walk around and take pictures of yourself on it was i remember the phone i remember when we didn't have a phone and and you know and, and my dad had a telephone voice because it was so exciting it was a, hello farnborough affordable phone i need because you know the phone was a huge thing you know and you'd have a piece of paper by the phone so you could write down in case anyone rang because it would be the king ringing to say that we were at war with germany or something <laughs> um but but Materially, we had bupkis, but but culturally and in ourselves, we were more relaxed because you didn't need stuff because of, you know poverty is relative. So I, you know, I, I I know young people who've got smartphones and expect you know hundred quid trainers, but they're vastly deprived because they live in a world in which those things are so prized. You know that if you haven't got, you know, if you haven't got hundred quid trainers, you're fucked in a lot of parts of our society. You know, so. Materially, I wouldn't say we were rich, but in, but it was at a time when you didn't have to, you know, you didn't have to have material things to be comfortable. But I think on, I think the point I'm trying to make is that on stage you adopt a position of uh, admitting your privileged, no, maybe not your privileged upbringing, but being painfully middle class. Yes, you know, that's, and I that's think it would be. A, it's, a it's partly started as a device because I thought. I mean, my initial jokes were things like, you know, I grew up in a village in Surrey and, and if any kids went barefoot, it's because their parents had the, the, the pavements carpeted with Wilton. I can't even remember it now. It was 34 years ago. Put Wilton carpet on the pavements and things like that. So my jokes were about not being working class because I thought it would be preposterous to pretend that I was working class. Or, because the, the explanation of the explanation you've given me about your background in, in respect to class is too much of a mouthful to transmit to. Well, it's that, but also set. the thing is, it's a question of what's funny. Some accents are funny and some aren't. You know, I mean, uh, Geordie accents are funny. Scottish accents are funny. Liverpool, like, Brummie accents are funny. West Country accents are funny. Um, the accent that isn't funny is the sort of non-specific home counties, lower middle class kind of drawl. I mean, you, now there are posh comedians. There were posh comedians then, but they would never have spoken in their posh voice. 
that would have been uncool. So, uh, but now you can go on stage and basically admit that you're hugely privileged and rich and have no need to do stand-up comedy at all because you've got a private income and, and own Canada. Um, <laughs> and the audience finds that hilarious, whereas you would have been beaten to death in the street if you'd done that. 30 years ago but I mean I, I think it, yeah, when you start you're much more self-conscious about about trying I remember Patrick Marber who's now a very successful playwright and he used to be an earnest young stand-up but now he sort of wanders around wearing a hat with a huge scarf carrying a tiny dog in the palm of his hand um, but he um, he did a terrible act called Dross Bros and I toured with him and he was a nice fellow I liked him but he took me out to lunch and he said he wanted to wanted tips on how to get into stand-up. I know, we don't, I'd only been going for a year. And he said, so, Jeremy, what persona should I do? I said, I, I don't know. I don't know, Patrick. And he said, well, there are four, aren't there? I said, what? He said, well, there are four. And he explained them. It was like the, um, the bombastic, the self-deprecating, or whatever they were. I said, I don't know, Patrick. Just go on and be yourself. And he said, no, no. The great thing about you, Jeremy, is when you go on stage, the audience knows the product that's on sale. And I thought, I can never be your friend. Um, but I think, over the years, I like to think that the, the artifice has stripped away. I mean, I, I, um, I, I think that uh, it's... I, I, just, I do just go on and talk, but it's a question of having an attitude of mind, I think. You go on and stage and talk with enough confidence or enough... I don't know what it is. You just communicate something to the audience, some sort of... And it's partly being confident and it's partly being empathetic in the way that a teacher would, where you're saying, look, I'm on your side, I want you to have a good time, but on the other hand, I don't, I'm not going to fucking bend over backwards. Um, you're going to have to like me and go with this, and if you don't, fine, I'm not going to hate you, but I'm also not going to apologise. So you just, I don't know, you just acquire a sort of ease with yourself which you might as well have, because as you get older, you think, well, I'm stuck with this now. I'm not going to become somebody else. Um, I think when you're younger, you sort of always hope that you will somehow. If you could be somebody else, I don't mean a specific person, but a, a type that is other than what you have, what, what would that type be? What is it that you... One of the X-Men, something like that. <laughs> which one? Yeah. Someone who could freeze people or um, shoot shoot tiny splinters out of my ears into people's faces. I don't know, something like that. As a, it's not much to ask, is it? I'm going to persist in asking the question, but now from the point of view of a, a different type of comedy. Oh, comedy. Um, when, you, when you were a young comic wishing you could be someone else. Oh, OK. I'd probably like to have been somebody who could leap around and be very expressive and very loud. And did you ever try that? Did no. you ever do one gig no. and just bounced around? No, I, there's a little bit of dance in my stand-up at the moment. I won't, I, won't, I, won't, um, I won't give the game away, but I just thought I'd do a little bit of dance. Someone on the, uh, the Facebook group of this podcast said that I should ask you about your wonderful singing voice, which could move an angel to tears, but I know enough to know that yeah. that is an in-joke and I'm not going to let myself get tripped up by it. Well, you, we can talk about that if you want. You don't want to talk about that? <laughs> I, do a, I do a radio program called <laughs> I'm Sorry, I Haven't a Clue, on which I have to sing. And uh, one of the things we do is one song to the tune of another. And the other week, I was at the Albert Hall for some strange benefit for Parkinson's disease. And it was a, it was a huge lineup. Pete Townsend, he's on day release. Um, <laughs> and um, I don't know why he was there. It must have been research. But anyway, um, but, uh, I had to sing Teenage Kicks to the tune of Jerusalem with a full orchestra at the Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> And the orchestra were really confused. <laughs> but I do occasionally go into tune. But I think is I because I can't tell if I'm in tune or not. So I can tell if other people are in tune. Um, but uh, and I can tune a piano. I can't tune a piano. But I'm, my sight is failing, so I'll get to the point where I can. But um, <laughs> but. Uh, occasion, I, occasionally, I, I can't tell if I'm in tune or not, so sometimes I do go into tune, especially if I'm in character. Like, you know, like people who stutter, if they're singing, they don't stutter. So if I do a voice, if I do, like, Bob Dylan or somebody, then I don't... I, don't, I go into tune, apparently. It's interesting, isn't it? So we've moved seamlessly from comedy to the art of singing. <laughs> 
I'm going to come back to comedy. One thing I would like to say, though, because I was saying about how easy it was when I started, is that definitely it was. Because my point was, I did an open spot at the Banana Cabaret, and a month later, they said, come back in four weeks. And and, and I'd rung the night before. I said, can I do an open spot? They said, come tomorrow. Four weeks later, I had a paid gig with 30 quid in my pocket. And this was 1984, which was more... And that was... The dole was 21 quid. So 30 quid in cash. And you started... Oh, fuck, now I'm going to go to prison for benefit fraud. <laughs> but, um, but um, you know, you got, you got cash. And you, if you did enough... And the thing was that there weren't many of us. So there were plenty of gigs. And you could get... And I think it's really hard for comics now because they wait months for an open spot. And, uh, you know, and they get every time they go to Edinburgh, they end up owing money. I mean, that's ridiculous. If you're going to end up owing money, don't go. Don't do gigs where you end up having to pay somebody back. What the, I mean, that's that's madness. But I mean, I think it's really hard for new comics now. Really hard. Before we wrap up. I Are we wrapping to, up? Yeah, nearly. We're nearly quite, done. We're, we're nearly done. It's flown now, by. Um, I was just getting going. <laughs> we could keep going in the dressing room. Um, sounded odd. Sounded odd. <laughs> we might. We might wrestle in front of an open fire. <laughs> okay. Um, I wanted to talk to you about specifically about your writing and specifically when you you mentioned earlier on this idea about or, and, or I, I picked up on this idea about um, about the that bear that soul bearing kind of comedy that wanting to see comedians actually reveal who they are. Yeah. You have produced a huge volume of material which has the most wonderful linguistic leaps and, and drawing comic parallels between subjects. I wrote down a few last time I saw you live. Something about uh, Trident, not wanting to cancel Trident because jobs are tied up in it. You can't not crack down on paedophiles because of the effect on the confectionery industry. Yeah. Do you know, you're, <laughs> which I butchered and which I apologise. No, but, that's good. That's better than the way I did it. <laughs> But you, those kind of leaps of logic and finding equivalences within ideas, is that something that you feel you worked towards or is it something that came naturally or is it something at which you've improved? I think I'm much m- more of a written comic than a performer comic. I mean, there are some comedians, it's all in the performance and I'm much more in the words. And I'm very careful. I mean, even if I'm speaking... To you now, I'm, I'm pausing to think about what I'm going to say, which I get from my dad, because my dad could never speak until the whole sentence was in his head, which meant it just take, it took ages to get anything out of him. So he, is he, he was, he was, you know, he left school at 15, but was very, very bright and was a scientist, was really clever, but he was very conscious of, about wanting to sound as clever as he was, and so he would always think, and he would be, he was a bit flowery, he would, you know, he, he was, he was slightly pretentious and he, he 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 you know he'd grown up in quite a poor family and he wanted to be uh, as revered as were the people that he was circulating among but he um he would always sort of uh, take great great pains to to set out the exposition of that which he wished to express in the most apposite fashion and so i i think i've got a bit of that from him and i li- i love the detail of words i mean I mean, what uh, I think um, Victoria Wood pointed out, the great thing about Alan Bennett, obviously he was a great influence on her, was specificity, that word, specificity. That, you know, biscuits isn't as funny as bourbon creams, for example, you know, and, and these little things that young comedians say, oh, oh, I must remember that. But, I mean, there are those things that are true, that, you know, that detail, and also not using the same word in the set up as the punchline you know, you've got to find a different word if the word in the punchline is truth in the setup is truthfulness in the punchline it's got to be honesty because you can't say truthfulness twice in the same i mean those things that you sort of learn and it and probably it's quite useful to do i mean I, we sneer at comedy courses but it's probably quite useful to have those things set out for you straight away so you don't make those mistakes um but yes i mean i very much like words but I think by not being much of a performer and getting used to that, I think I've become quite a good performer in, in just in terms of being at ease with, with myself and being able to, to just sometimes think, well, look, I'm not going to, I'll try not to get in a flap about the joke. Because I see, I, I, I mean, when I do the news quiz on Radio 4, I, I, I do it without any notes and I don't, 
I've I've thought about things, but I haven't formulated them that clearly. And a lot of people come and they're doing they they think they're on Mock the Week and they're they're on you know they they think they're at a gig and they're doing Route One and they and you think you're talking in a weird voice. You're talking in a weird voice to people who go to sh- sleep listening to the shipping forecast, <laughs> not knowing if they're going to wake up. You know, why are you talking in that weird voice? But they, that's their, that, that is what they think is their assertive comedy voice. Um, but, I, I mean, performance is important, but it's just about, you know, it's just, it's just a human skill, is how to present yourself in a way that is interesting and likeable and compelling and people can bear to listen to for two hours. I don't, I don't like too much artifice. I think it's weird when somebody comes off stage and they're totally different from the person that they were on stage. There are people that do a character... I mean, you know, uh, Al Murray is a fantastic character comic. I mean, he is... And he does the crowd work. He's one of the few people... I mean, there are people who do crowd work who are brilliant at it, like Paddy Monaghan, I think he's fantastic at crowd work. And Al Murray is absolute genius at it. And he's... And it's a great character. And, he's, and it's really, really funny and really intelligent and thoughtful. And, I mean, the danger is that people going along thinking, we agree with this guy. But, you know, people are always... That's always going to happen. People thought that with, you know... Um, with Alf Garnett, you know, they thought, oh, good, we'll vote for that bloke. And they thought that with the clangers, good, well, we will go and live on the moon. <laughs> we will go and speak like Swanee Whistles and live on the moon. Good, thank God somebody's got the courage to do it. So um, you, can't, you, can't, you can't, you know, constantly worry about the stupidity of the audience. But you, though you have got a responsibility to try not to... I'll tell you one thing. I did a gig at Jonglers once, and I had a joke where I went on stage, and I, the joke was going to be, I fucking hate black people. And the punchline was going to be, I fucking hate white people as well. Not very funny, but I thought it was quite good. Um, just a, you know, um, joke thing. And I said, I fucking hate black people. And I got a massive cheer. And I thought, oh, shit. Yeah. Not everybody in the audience is on the same page. Yeah. So you'd have to th- you do have to think about these things. I wanted to ask one more specific question about the writing, not just in terms the of writing. word choice. But also, this you're very good at taking ideas and finding an equivalent idea. Like another example I made a note of was democracy is like an emergency tracheotomy. Unless you're sure, don't do anything. And that is such... Now, that's not yeah. a case of... Yeah, the, voting, word, the words voting, are very yeah. funny. The words are very funny, but it's not about word choice. It's about the choice of ideas. And as someone who has... Uh, produced a huge volume of stuff between the, the stuff that you do on News Quiz or the stuff that you, you've done in Jeremy Hardy Speaks the Nation or in your own stand-up tours. You've produced an enormous amount of those ideas of a consistent quality over a long period Thank of time. You. And I, I mean, that's something for me I find particularly difficult in my own writing. Whenever I get like a really good, oh, that's like that, I really make a meal of it and try and get every, get ring everything out of it because I'm like, finally, I've got one. Yeah, no, I, I tend, I tend to leave it there. I mean, Mark Steele, who's a dear friend I spend a lot of time with, Mark will take an idea like that and he'll just do it for the next five, ten minutes. And he'll say, why don't you do more of that? And I say, no, I, I don't. I don't want to. It wouldn't be me. I, I don't feel like it. I mean, I did a thing. I did a joke about um, people say, "Oh, a lot of people join the army. They don't expect to get sent to war." And I said, "Well, they joined the wrong thing, then, didn't they? If they, <laughs> if they, you know, joined the scouts or the friends of the Royal Opera House, they could they could have cause to complain." But. Um, <laughs> And Mark said, you should do a whole thing about the opera and all that. And I said, no, nah, it's done. It's just done. I, it w- I wouldn't feel... I you, mean, Mark would do it and it'd be brilliant, but it wouldn't feel true to me. You'd rather boil the idea down almost to a one-liner, which says the entire... Yeah, I'm learning, I'm learning to get more out of things, partly because it fills up time, which is good. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and also, idea, you know, I'm running out of ideas and my life's coming to an end. So... Um, <laughs> I mean, the great the thing that I one of the things that I like the most about what I do is I'm still learning how to do it, and I still consider it work in progress. And I can't give anybody any advice because I'm still figuring it out. And I think that's quite quite nice. I mean, I'm 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 at ease in myself in a way that a young comic maybe is, but not entirely. But I mean, um, I do think when you're younger, you just try too hard, you overthink everything, you over-explain everything. You have a rhythm which makes it so obvious where you're going that sometimes it's a bit, you know. I mean, I, I saw a comedian in French once, and I don't, I've, you know, I've got O level, but I can't, couldn't understand what he was saying. But I found myself laughing because of the rhythm of it, because 
you know, people are quite Pavlovian. And I don't want to be like that. I don't want to sort of spoon feed the audience, say, here's where you laugh. You know, the way that politicians do with an audience, where they speed up and let you know it's time to clap because they overemphasize everything and then pause. And I think, no, I don't want to... I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be manipulative. I don't... I'll use the tricks that I've learned and the, you know, because... You know, people say, I suppose the great thing about you is you, you have like one or two ideas and then the rest of it is entirely improvised, isn't it? And I go, yeah. And I think, you fucking idiot. <laughs> of, of course it isn't. You know, of course I've spent ages thinking about this and scribbling on bits of paper and, you know, writing things and thinking and putting, you know. But, but, but you know, you want to give people the impression that, that it, you, you want to be in the moment with them. I don't want to be somebody who's talking as though the audience isn't there, even though I'm not asking them questions and making jokes about their jobs i want i want to be in the room with them you know are you uh, happy just not afterwards <laughs> are you happy what profoundly happy um sort of yeah i think so yeah in a way i mean i mean it's about acceptance isn't it you reach a stage in life where you think well it's this is it now i mean it's going to be like this and that's quite a good place to be i will not be massively famous but neither i hope Will I starve? And um, that's quite a good place to be, you know. And then, and then you can relax, and then you can think, well, I can fiddle about, try some different things. I can, I can take some risks, you know, because I'm, I'm okay, you know. Um, and I don't, I don't want for much. I just want to sort of live out my years with dignity. LAUGHTER <laughs> Um, and I want. I hope that I'll end up living somewhere where a nice man brings some owls round to show us once a month, <laughs> and no documentaries are made about the place. Um, but um, no, I'm, I am. Yeah, I'm all right actually. I'm, I am. I am sort of quite happy. Yeah, in a way. I mean, I think I'm happy in a good way, which is that I think that life is utterly awful, but I've I've made peace with that. You know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, people are probably thinking I'm being very disingenuous and setting up all sorts of smoke screens, but I don't know. Maybe they are. I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we we should uh, leave it there. I'm being waved at from the back, okay, um, but not in a questioning kind of way. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me? In, oh, one second. Uh, you can plug your tour, of course. Oh, We're still on tour. Uh, I'm on tour. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Hardy. Woo!